Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Joining us on the podcast today is Denise Chisholm, Director of Quantitative Market Strategy. She tells us what factors and market sectors she's keeping an eye on and where she's seeing opportunities. Denise talks about the volatility of the bond market, pointing out that they have a volatility premium as the equity market does. Denise says this creates a bear case for treasuries or higher yields. When you look at the speculators, the large speculators, you see net positioning is the most short it's ever been historically going back to the 90s. She says this is a great contrarian indicator. The more visible the bear thesis is, the more likely it's already priced into the market, and the more likely there's actually a total return opportunity in bonds as well as in equity. Denise also highlights opportunities in industrials, consumer discretionary, technology, and financials. Bottom sectors include utilities and consumer staples. This podcast was recorded on November 10th, 2023. There's a big story, certainly, across all markets, but it does seem that progressively with interest rates going up, the story of bonds has only just gotten louder to to retail investors as well, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, it certainly isn't the interest rates or the stable investment that we once thought of bonds as, right? In some ways, bonds these days have as big of a volatility premium as the equity market does. And I think it's really interesting. I mean, we saw interest rates uh, from long-term interest rates touch 5%, which even on a real basis is historically only back to median levels. But it's been in certainly a steep uptrend over the last six months. And I think the question mark is what that means. And I think that there's certainly concern around, let's call it the, the bear case for treasuries or, you know, the higher higher yields more likely, right? We have sticky inflation. We have persistent deficits as far as the eye can see and QTs. So the, the bear case is fairly laid out. What's really interesting is what you see in the net positioning is that pretty much that's played out in the net positioning and who isn't short treasuries at this point. So when you look at the speculators, the large speculators, in the uh, the weekly uh, CFTC report, you can find that we've seen net positioning be the most short it's ever been in the history of the data that we have going back to 1990. Now, what that has meant historically is that you usually want to take the opposite side of that picture. And it's a great contrarian indicator. Again, the more, the easier the narrative from the bear thesis is to, to see, the more visible that bear thesis is, the more likely it's already priced into the market and the more likely it is there's there's actually total return opportunity in bonds as well as in equity. Okay, that's fascinating. So it's a contrarian indicator and who isn't, I mean, because as you say, we like we saw some big names in the universe of bonds and some of them, I don't know, they were bigger names 20, 30 years ago, but all out there with a discussion on what they're doing ultimately and covering shorts and moving perhaps in the other direction. I mean, we heard we heard a bit of both. One was that bonds, in fact, are not to be touched. And as you say, you've seen that in some of the positioning where you hear like people are covering their shorts, so they're moving in the other direction from the bond side of things. So why is this playing out so much in sort of the public sphere? It just seems like voices and topics that we haven't heard of from a long time. Well, it's been the worst, I think, three years in the bond market. What I, We have data going back to the 1930s. I'm pretty sure this is the worst three years ever on record. 
So in some ways, yes, they're the hottest topic. I mean, the biggest, you know, with the downdraft that we saw in the market, right, we saw a peak to trough contraction in the equity market of almost 10%, or I think just over 10% from an intraday perspective. And what you actually saw during that time was that bonds weren't protective at all. And if you think about different areas of the market, like TLT being total worth treasury and the Qs being what we consider as like the growth engine, Qs were down less than TLT. So we have some sort of flip-flop of what we've seen that has been persistent in our investment career. And I think that the way I look at the signals is, okay, so we have a bunch of changing correlations and we have a bunch of changing signals. What does that mean in terms of historical market opportunities? And I already listed one, but I'll give you another. So the first one that we talked about is that net positioning is that the way I look at it, the large speculators are the most net short they've been in treasuries. That is usually the point at which those sort of bear case narratives are already priced in the market, which means that treasuries have a, probably a pretty good total return. And you can actually, the charts are up on my LinkedIn if you want to find them. It's fairly monotonically related. The more net short that we see speculators be, the more opportunity from a total return perspective there is in the bond market. The one caveat I will give to that is that it, you should be expecting equity-like volatility. Well, that's, that's the only difference. I've heard that a lot. The equity-like balls. Why? I mean, that that seems that really does seem not right. Seems strange, right? It's actually it happens sometimes, and it happens during periods where you've seen a big downdraft in the bond market, right? So once it can move in one direction, it can move a lot, right? So bond bonds. I mean, again, we think of them as stable opportunities delivering a stable income, and they do. They do, do deliver that coupon, especially, obviously, if you hold them to term. That doesn't mean that price can't rotate just as much as an equity price can rotate. And again, if you think about the relationship, the more you see speculators be short, the more likely it is that there will be persistent volatility in the bond market. So when you think about it from a total return perspective, that's my that's what I do. Right. So I'm looking for total return up opportunities. But when you think of it as a risk-adjusted return perspective, I'm not sure that there are any better or worse than equities from that perspective, because I think that from a risk-adjusted perspective, I think equity market is still a very viable risk-reward opportunity to me as well. And that's why I think that it wouldn't be to me to think that there's so much opportunity in bonds that you want to take from equities and give to bonds. But to the extent that you are a 60-40 holder, I do think that the opportunity set within fixed income has changed presumably and so much so that it's actually much more advantageous now than it was just three years ago. That is fascinating. Okay, so does this sort of situation, equity and bond volatility that that are, you know, some similarities in terms of the amount of volatility, does this traipse forward until a recession hits? And I don't even know if it's a recession based on the type of recession we've been expecting for a year now or if it's one much further out. But do we see this continue or is there a settling process that's going on? There is likely a settling process, especially with bonds. I mean, the equity market from a volatility perspective is probably in line with historic volatilities. And that's what you could probably expect until we see that recession hit whenever that is. From a bond market perspective, I think it's partly driven by QT. And that we even saw in the little bit of QT that we had seen post or QE, I should say, you know, we saw the flip side of QE yeah. during that process. So whenever we see the central bank intervene, then there is likely more volatility in bonds than any kind of historical, historical average. 
So what you could see is that when you play it out over time, to the extent that QT is no longer required at some point, then I do think that we will see a settling position in the volatility of bonds. But I think if you play it out over the course of the next, let's call it six months to a year, I think that you should expect that volatility to still be in play. And that QT will still be needed. I mean, that's also one of the levers I remember you telling us, you know, if interest rates got too high and we were talking about cuts, which we aren't, or it seems we're not, then QT was also one of the levers to sort of just pull back on the amount of tightening. Where where do you see that? I think it's unclear. I mean, I don't see it crystal clear from, a, you know, not seeing the stripes on the ball. But I will say, as it relates to cuts, and Powell said this in much of his testimony, that he wouldn't find it strange to actually be cutting reference interest rates and to still be having quantitative tightening. So I do think that that could happen. And really, when you think about the Federal Reserve, I mean, they're obviously not great forecasters. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in some ways in the mess that we're in with inflation. But when you look at the dot plot next year, there is 50 basis points of cuts. So if you're sort of a long term, you know, investor, when you think of instead of the next six months or three months and you're thinking over the next three to five years, I mean, the most likely next move from a Federal Reserve perspective is an interest rate cut at this point. Even the Fed is saying that that's likely something that we will um, consider over the course of the next maybe one year, but certainly if not, maybe three years. So, and you know, when you think about inflation as the key driver behind that, that historically been, and we've seen some renormalization in the unemployment rate. So with inflation as the key driver, they're already talking about more long-term inflation targets being out in 2025. So to the extent that inflation continues to decelerate, albeit maybe at a slower pace, so inflation is ostensibly a bit stickier, I think that relative to the Fed's target, the Federal Reserve could still be cutting interest rates. So, again, that puts back volatility in sort of the bond price, as it were. So one of your colleagues, Mike Hickey, was talking about a very different perspective because he's he's fund manager, as you well know, for, for equity portfolio, for growth and so on. He said there's absolutely nothing wrong from an equity perspective with 3% inflation. What does the Fed think of that? <laughs> I guess yeah. it's sort of the question. This is sort of this, do, does it become sticky at three question? Yeah, so I would say, one, he's right. When you look at the, the distribution of outcomes for both the equity market and for real GDP, what you'll find is a very historic sweet spot of 3% inflation. Anywhere less than 3% can err towards being too low, with deflation being a risk. And I would say anything greater than 4.5%, which is technically top quartile CPI or inflation, uh, is too high for the equity market. So that has been the historic sweet spot. And I'm not sure that the Fed would disagree, right? And I think that that is exactly why that their target of 2% is out in 2025. To the extent that they thought that 3% was truly a problem, then they wouldn't be potentially on pause or have slowed already to every other meeting or now maybe every third meeting. So I do think that the Fed maybe potentially agrees. Now, what they would like is for inflation expectations to be very clearly anchored. I think they would also like the inflation, the, the um, unemployment rate to be more normalized or the labor market to be more normalized. And I think we are seeing checkboxes in both of those columns. And I think to the extent that that is a little bit more steady state, then I do think that the Fed will consider if we are at a run rate of around 3%, potentially doing something different. 
with the target. And when you look back historically, you know, remember that target of 2% didn't exist until 2016. Right. And because different Federal Reserves have different targets and those targets have evolved over time, I wouldn't as an investor bet that that will never change either. So it's not clear to me that the Fed won't come to the same conclusion as we, as the historical data come to right now. I mean, it's somewhat controversial because you will hear people will say, no, no, 2% is all, it just has to get back there. And, you know, for this is more in the Canadian context, if we're circling around 4%, we're, you know, that's still double where they want to be. So get scared. <laughs> Essentially, this is the story. So it, it, it depends. What will it take? What needs to happen over the course of the next year or two for the 60-40 of bond, of, of equity to bonds to, to be back to, well, not being correlated, essentially? Yeah, to me, I think that there's one big driver of both the equity market and in some ways the bond market um, that's rare. And I think a lot of people would say, well, it's the Federal Reserve or it's inflation or it's the soft landing. I actually think it's earnings growth. So if there was one thing to watch, in some ways, I think that that's the definition of a soft landing is to the extent that companies can be more profitable. That means that it is more likely that a soft landing than a hard landing. It is also more likely that there is productivity that we are seeing, which keeps a lid on inflation with unit labor costs being lower, with margins potentially being higher, and such that that precondition plays out that inflation is lower, which is a boon for the bond market. So I actually think that the entirety of the equity market and the bond market, if I, and it's not, it's not on one thing, but if I had to pick one thing to watch as an investor, it would be earnings season. And so far, what we are seeing is upside surprises. And in, in fact, X energy, which again is sort of off cycle this cycle, sometimes it's defense, it's what got you into this mess. X energy, earnings growth outside that vertical is up 10% year on year. So even in uh, real income growth that was negative over the course of the last year, it's now positive, but was negative at some point during the year. GDP was only 0.66% and GDI was actually contracting. You've had a situation where earnings growth has actually been quite good. So to the extent that things play out and actually, you know, what we see is from a leading indicator perspective, things turn. I actually think the companies could be much more profitable than we expect over the course of the next year. Partly on that, on productivity, which would be both positive for the equity market and positive for the bond market, and certainly positive for the 60-40 portfolio. You used to speak a lot about this, and I used to enjoy speaking to you about it, but it, it was it was very much you discussing the idea that real rates had been negative for so long. And so what we're really always talking about is the extent to which we're getting too close to that slipping back into a negative situation. Real rates are positive. That's good. Does that conversation come up at all? Is there a worry there? Or is that only once we get to a recession we think about? Yeah, it's real rates are. I mean, you really can't get away from this positive correlation. I do think that people still want to make the argument that, well, the higher real rates are, the more the lower real GDP growth is going to be in the future and the more likely we are to get into a recession. I just don't see that in the data. I'm not saying it can't ever happen, right? So it happened in 2009. But the question is, if you say, was that coincident, meaning real rates were high and we were hit with the debt crisis, or was that causal in the sense that real rates caused the recession? I'm not so sure, right? So when you look at the broader data set, what you'll see is this positive correlation is that most times real interest rates are high. What you actually have is growth uh, and higher growth rather than lower growth than when interest rates 
are sort of at that bottom quartile. So I still think that there's this, we're, we're thinking about this utopia of what low rates provided us, almost like, you know, <laughs> you know, when you have a child, like when now my kids are 16 and 18, and you sort of think back to when they were three and five and think that, oh, that was so cute. And really, you forget how hard it was then. Uh, and I think it's the same thing with interest rates, like low interest rates look like that they should have been a boon for the economy, but we actually forget what the economy was like during times of low interest rates. And it was quite poor. Low real GDP growth, low real wage growth. It was actually a negative, co like a cause correlation. Um, and you see that the same on the opposite side of the ledger. So to me, the higher that real rates have been, the more likely it is we are reaching this escape velocity for growth. So I actually see that as a positive risk reward, not a negative risk reward, despite the fact that what we're seeing is, you know, an equity market that's at 20 times. And I think that that's right in line with what what I would say is re-normalize real okay. rates back to median levels. Will sticky inflation be part of the reason that we can stay into positive real rates, essentially? I mean, is there sort of something good there? Yes, for sure. I mean, I think that we still use sticky inflation as like a prob, like a definition of a problem. Right. When I would just say, you know, persistent nominal inflation as opposed to this impetus for deflation, which is what we saw post GFC, right? So you take away the impetus for deflation and what do you have? You have sort of sticky-ish inflation. As long as sticky-ish means let's call it two and a half to three and a half or maybe even four, then I think that that's a positive thing, right? As long as it's, what you want is two things. You want it to be in that realm of let's call it normalized inflation and you want it to be very little volatility in it. So you don't want to be going from two and a half to four and a half back to two and a half. What you want is something like stable prices, right? So in some ways, I would say stable price growth, right? It's not actually stable prices. It's stable in the growth, which allows companies to plan. So to the extent that we are, in fact, renormalizing to something that's three to four, what's most important about that three to four is that it stays within the three to four vertical. So the companies can plan on it and then earn money on it and then make margin on it. And that investors can plan to try and outgrow it in their... Exactly. No, I think that's exactly right. Take us through some of the sectors that, you know, th this is going to be a real struggle for... We've, again, we've talked to some of your colleagues and you just said there's certain sectors, companies, but sectors that are just going to struggle with interest rates having to sit higher. I mean, that's just sort of a fact. Is that still what drives some of your sector bottom three sectors, I guess? Yeah, you know, I'm not so sure it does. Um, oh. And in some ways, I think that there are a lot of people who think, well, now that interest rates are going down, the defensive sectors, especially like utilities that have been more of a play on interest rates, are now maybe that they're going to be your offense, right? And I actually just don't see that in the data. So again, back to, I don't think that the big critical driver for me and my investment thesis around sectors is interest rates or inflation. It's really around relative earnings. And I think that there's a corollary there because what you saw is technology earnings contract when interest rates 
were elevated, that's not always causal, right? It doesn't happen the exact same way. But what I see is a renormalization of interest rates, however high, is likely going to be coincident over the next year with a recovery in technology earnings, with a recovery in consumer discretionary earnings. And I think those two sectors are actually where the risk reward is still the strongest. And then I would say industrials as a top three. Um, so I do think that interest rates renormalizing is positive for offense, not positive for defense, but I think it's not the biggest positive, right? The biggest positive I see is sort of that, that trajectory of higher earnings growth over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. And I would add in financials here. Oh, which to the sector, to the, to the sectors on top? Yes, I would add it to the sectors on top. I think I had, a, I had a client ask me recently, like, what do you think about the financial sector? Because a lot of people are afraid of it. And I said, you know, I think I'm afraid of it in a very different way than most investors are afraid of it. How are you I'm, afraid? Afraid, I'm afraid to be very underweight financials. Right. When you study history, what you'll see is when financials work, they're kind of the only sector that works, meaning it's not like you can get your financial exposure from consumer discretionary or technology or consumer staples or anything else. So it tends to be, I like to call it the statistical uh, re reflection of a pain trade. Um, so that's, you know, data point number one for financials. Data point number two is relative valuation. Look, it's gotten cheaper on a relative price to book basis every cycle, but even on relative PE has actually worked historically, meaning the wanted to buy it when the sector has been cheap and you wanted to sell it when the sector has been expensive. So the D rating that we have seen does increase your risk reward. Again, you know, what we see is regulation being a big question mark, but again, valuation, even despite that, has been supportive. And then I would say finally, that at some point, if you just play it out for a long enough period of time, if I'm right on the inflation thesis, it is in play that the Fed will cut interest rates Yep. Right. Once the yield curve is inverted, at some point it will uninvert. And that uninversion has been beneficial for financials. So let's call that like I'm going to add that to the top four. Right. So consumer discretionary technology, industrials, and then I'd say financials. And then at the bottom, you've already mentioned utilities. Yeah. I did. So I would say utilities. And look, they are a lot cheaper now, but cheap usually doesn't work. And what you see historically is that they're not really consistently an interest rate play either. Um, and what I have is that the biggest reason that you want to own utilities is that 80% of the time in a down market, they actually outperform. And ironically, we did this. correction. So I think that it's giving you some clues that maybe offense is a better defense than your classic defense. So I think that, you know, in the bottom three is utilities. And then I would still add in consumer staples. Again, you have valuation ostensibly support, meaning that they're cheap now, but relative earning is still lagging. And I think that's problematic. And then I think the third one where I just don't see a positive risk reward is still real estate, which is tricky because I think that that is more interest rate sensitive. But at the same time, what I want to see as an investor in my quantitative signals is I want to see bottom quartile relative valuation and bottom quartile ROEs, and we're not at either. So I don't see that as a positive risk reward. So I think that that's still my bottom three. And so with real estate, just to clarify, it's it's sort of just not there yet. Is that not is that, yet. It's not there yet. Okay. Yeah. For those of you who want to trade it on rates, be my guest. 
you know, when I think about 12 month time horizon, do I really think that the risk reward is positive enough with a 70% hurdle rate for my odds? I'm just not there yet. When you go across some of the cap spectrum and been a lot of discussion about, about what works and growth and big and so on and small caps have not really caught it yet. It's actually been an interesting market in the last 10 days or so because there's a few different stories flipping around. What do you think of sort of the cap size? It's it, it all still to do with whether a small company can finance itself one way or the other. Yes. So I do still see opportunity down the cap spectrum within small and mid caps. I will say that if I just in a large cap bucket, I shouldn't say I tilt towards large cap growth as opposed to large cap value. It's not by a lot. But usually what you see historically is if earnings growth is going to be higher, Usually large cap growth actually outperforms large cap value, which is, I think, the opposite of what people would think. Though I'm still kind of pro-growth from a large cap perspective, but I do still see opportunities down the cap spectrum, which certainly has not played out so far this year. The question is, is that opportunity still persistent in the data? I think it is. So you have two things. You have very strong valuation support, and I mean that on relative price to book in both the small and mid-cap universe. And that has historically increased your risk reward, so meaning that increased your odds of outperformance. And two, valuation spreads are the widest there. So I would say two investors that are most concerned about a recession, though, are people that were invested in small and mid-caps. So much so that what you see, especially in consumer discretionary, is that the stocks on an equal-weighted basis are back down to their pandemic lows. Right. So that shows even despite the fact that earnings growth has actually been quite good. So all of this underperformance in small caps has been more derating, which in some ways statistically just increases your odds. So I actually think that down the cap spectrum, small cap value might be the most positive risk reward and sort of as a buffer against that large cap growth. So those are the interesting two opportunities that I'm seeing in the market from a cap perspective. Do you always use a timeline of sort of roughly six months to a year? I would say my sweet spot's 12 months. So anything less, like three months is basically a coin flip in my data, right? So I'm using historical probabilities, anything like, you know, three and some of the time six, but not all the time six. And then anything past 18 months is also a coin flip because it just doesn't, the signals don't, they just start to decay out that far. So I always say a one-year time horizon. And that's why I say a lot of the stuff that I talk about doesn't, shouldn't be coincident bottoms, right? I'm not trying to market time. I'm trying to find opportunity and then say with a one-year time horizon, what are my odds? And do I think the investment is viable here? And I do think that there's a lot of investment that's very viable here. It has been absolutely fascinating to catch up with you on all these different points and, and quite contrarian calls from a lot of the things that we've heard and the importance of earnings, perhaps above all. I hope I'm not misquoting you there. That just seems to be a huge takeaway from what you're saying. Is that, is that about right? You are not. That is a perfect quote. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, cl- we'll clip that and quote that. Denise Chisholm, we're delighted to uh, have you join us here as always. Thanks for spending the time with us. All the best. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us here today. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn.
Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.